Yes, you have chronic pain. Don't let anyone tell you differently. While others try to minimize it, the pain continues to exist. It has been with you for well over three months. It may be sharp, stinging, or a dull ache. It may be a tingling sensation in your fingers and toes or a feeling of stiffness or heaviness or an achy feeling that seems to come and go with no rhyme or reason. You want to scream in agony, pray for relief, cry from constant suffering as you lie there in bed covered by a blanket or while sitting up or walking even short distances. Others around you who don't have chronic pain just don't seem to understand. They try to comfort and reassure you, but it just doesn't do any good. The pain just eats away at your inner core. They tell you to live with it. Be strong. Ignore it. It seems so easy for them to say these things when you still have the torturing pain. You become more irritable, angry, and hypersensitive to everything they say. You think, oh, it's so easy to give suggestions. Meanwhile, the pain increases even when you do what your doctor or clinical nurse practitioner tells you to do. You take medications that do nothing for the pain. You know the medical community is cutting back on prescribing certain painkillers because they're worried about drug abuse and about federal restrictions. The pain comes right back to haunt you. You agonize about the future. You worry that the pain will only get worse. You fear that it will always be like this and it will never get no better, What, however, the things that you try. You think about what you did to deserve this suffering. You feel such guilt for anything you might have said or done over the years and for what others around you have had to endure since feeling the pain. You apologize continuously to others, especially caretakers, and to God, yet the pain still eats away with you, and you don't know why. You generate constant anxious and depressing thoughts. Your life stress is unbearable. The pain is so intense that at times you feel like it's not worth living and that you simply want to die. You withdraw on your bed, hoping that the next day will bring you some relief, but it doesn't. Well, if you have these experiences, you are not alone. If you've experienced any of these thoughts or feelings, in fact, there are presently about 100 million people in the United States who suffer from physical chronic pain, and that's not including their caretakers or others who experience other kinds of related pain, including pain from emotions, life stressors, thinking pain, and lack of fortitude. Now that's approximately, in terms of physical pain, one in every 3.5 people in the United States. About 25 million of them describe their pain as being moderate to severe in intensity. Approximately two out of three people in pain have had it for more than five years. To quote, Chronic pain costs the nation up to $635 billion each year in medical treatment and lost productivity, according to a study released in 2011, Relieving Pain in America, a blueprint for transforming prevention, care, education, and research by the Institute of Medicine Committee on Advancing Pain Research, Care, and Education. Studies authors, who reaffirmed these statistics in 2015, noted that these expenditures related to pain are higher than those for cancer, heart disease, and diabetes combined. And that's just the physical pain. But as I said before, what about pain from anxiety, depression, anger, or unhappiness? What about pain from negative thinking, your life stressors, or from a lack of fortitude, or ego strength, or coping skills? In these podcasts, you will learn how to reduce all your pain by developing a pain management lifestyle over time. 
you will learn 10 different facts about pain and about how to use five easy scales that will help you lower your pain levels on a weekly basis. Finally, you will learn specific strategies to use with each scale to reduce and maintain low pain levels over time. If you're ready to learn more about developing your new pain management lifestyle, then continue to listen to these podcasts. Everyone who has endured chronic pain has a story to tell, and that includes me. My story began in autumn 2005. Since my late teens, I had been quite an athlete, jogging and playing tennis two to three times a week, biking three to four hours on weekends, climbing mountains and skiing single and double black diamond trails during the winter months. In the early 1980s, I trained for and ran three Boston marathons, staying in the back of the pack just for the thrill of it rather than for speed. I recall having some knee pain after the second marathon in 1981, and I went to see orthopedic surgeon Kenneth Gregg at the time, who said to me, George, given your husky size, I'd highly recommend that you run on soft wooded trails rather than paved roads. While I felt thin at 185 pounds and 6 feet, I still knew what Dr. Gregg meant. Instead of sticking to wooded trails, I rationalized that the endorphin high of street jogging on the sloped, hard pavement would be much nicer. Did I listen to him? No. Who did in those days? As a licensed psychologist, I did a lot of psychological testing during those years. I typed hundreds of reports, never paying any attention to my own hunched-over posture at my desk. My report writing helped me sustain a large referral base of doctors and nurses, but it never occurred to me what I was doing to my spine. My wife would scold me for bending over forward, pressing down hard on the keyboard, using two fingers. I didn't listen to her, just like I didn't listen to Dr. Gregg. My frenetic need to get these reports done surpassed any long-term concern for what could happen to my spine and my peripheral nerves. I continued to play tennis often and remained active athletically until 2005, when at age 54, I noticed some tingling sensations in my fingers and my toes. My physician at the time did a blood and urine screen and ruled out diabetes. He then referred me to a neurologist who initially observed that my symptoms were probably due to, quote, wearing tight sneakers and you may have carpal tunnel syndrome, unquote. After he administered an electromyogram, which is an EMG, he told me, I'm sorry to say, but you have peripheral neuropathy. He was an older gentleman and didn't really recommend anything for me to do, other than just inform me that my peripheral nerve fiber endings were damaged. He just stared at me. There was really no empathy from him. I knew I had to stop playing tennis, and this was perhaps the most painful experience I confronted at the time. Tennis had been in my blood since childhood. I grew up with a father who was a handball champion in New York City's Bronx neighborhood, and he had met my mother while playing mixed doubles with her on a handball court. My parents eventually picked up racket sports and encouraged me to do the same. I recall the thrill of having a wooded Davis racket at age 10 and a natural ability to play singles. Even though my parents couldn't afford to give me tennis lessons or have me train or do United States Tennis Association competitions, I still enjoyed both the competition and the socialization tennis provided. I enjoyed playing at our local tennis courts in Cunningham and Alley Pond Park in Queens, New York City, 
in between my elementary school yard stickball games. On weekdays, I often rode my bike to the park after school. I took a bag lunch on weekends and played tennis all day while socializing with other players of all ages who loved the sport. As a young adult, I remember one spring day playing against a young New York Knickerbocker rookie named Phil Shoulders Jackson. Boy, was that fun, as this guy laughed at himself, not knowing how to get out of his own way at the net if I hit a ball directly at him. Every year I went with some friends to the U.S. Open at the original Forest Hills Stadium off of Queens Boulevard in Queens. Later on, I would teach tennis lessons at summer camps and continue to play for fun at Ohio State University, then at Cunningham and Alley Pond Parks, especially during the summers, when I transferred to New York University. After obtaining my bachelor's degree in psychology, I headed for Boston to attend graduate school and played at local park tennis courts in Brookline and Cambridge. Eventually, I obtained my doctoral degree, then married a beautiful woman I met while during a clinical internship on Boston's North Shore. My wife, Stephanie, had similar clinical interests and loved athletics as much as I did. We moved to the North Shore after I obtained my first job as a clinical director of a state Department of Mental Health Regional Adolescent Day Treatment Program and continued to play in the early mornings at a local club for many years. Tennis was so much a part of me that I envisioned I would eventually die on a tennis court in my later years. How did your chronic pain begin? Was it a long time in the making, or did it come on suddenly through an accident or an illness? What did it force you to give up? How have you mourned or grieved it, and more importantly, moved on? I mourned tennis for a long time after having to give it up. Periodically, I would cry alone in my car while passing the tennis club on my way to the office. I missed my early bird group of men and women I had come to know since the early 1980s. Yes, I would always have my memories, but it wasn't the same. Grieving anything or anyone that has been a part of your life for so long is tough, no matter what. And this is what happens when you begin to have chronic pain. I eventually had to give up jogging as well because of the ongoing tingling sensations in my feet. Oh boy, a double whammy. To go out jogging at any time is a natural high. Just ask any jogger how enjoyable it is to run for miles. One becomes entranced in an endorphin-producing meditative state after just one mile. Not being able to do this ever again made me quite sad, especially when I called how I love jogging with my wife Stephanie, friends, or in the woods with one of our golden retrievers. After letting go of tennis and jogging, I managed to cope by biking during the warm months and by doing the aerobic elliptical machine at the local YMCA during the winter. Still, it just wasn't the same. Losing both the ability to play tennis and jog symbolically represented my entry into a painful rite of passage, namely aging. Fortunately, I remained resilient enough to compromise with my body. I continued to bike industriously, played golf with my friend on Friday mornings, and even swam from time to time at the local YMCA, just trying to keep in shape. These activities kept me going despite experiencing increased peripheral neuropathy and some sacroiliac pain. In late August 2008, my wife and I spent a lovely weekend with my sister-in-law and her boyfriend in the White Mounds in Jackson, New Hampshire. We enjoyed their company, taking time to sit in the cold mountain river, 
walking the wooded paths and playing golf. My wife and I left to go home around three that Sunday afternoon, but decided to stop briefly at some outlets in North Conway, New Hampshire. My wife went shopping while I chose to hang out at the Brookstone store. I didn't mind because I saw that they had some massage chairs ranging in price from $1,500 to $4,900, and I thought that trying one out would be a nice, relaxing way to end our stay in the area. Of course, I wasn't going to buy one. I just wanted to try it out at my own risk. I chose to sit in the most expensive leather-covered massage chair because it had so many options and was quite comfortable. I read the indemnification sheet with language similar to what you see when skiing the more difficult triple diamond trails. Quote, skiing down this trail can cause death. Go at your own risk. Unquote. Clearly, I would not hold the store owners or makers of the machine responsible for my decision to try out the chair. I just sat down and turned the chair dial to shiatsu massage moderate intensity. I relaxed and felt these hard steel balls starting to roll from the top of my neck down my thoracic and lumbar spine and down both my legs. It was quite comfortable and enjoyable while sitting there, so much so that I decided to do it again after the first 10-minute massage. Only this time, I chose to lie down flat on my back and turned up the dial to shiatsu high intensity. No sooner than the machine started did I become paralyzed, not physically, but psychologically. I could not move from the lowered seat. Nothing was keeping me there physically. I certainly wasn't buckled in. It was as if as I was becoming startled by this strange electrical sensation in my back, then in my upper and lower spine, and then legs as the steel bowls rotated intensely that I couldn't even move. I never felt such an eerie electrical sensation in all my life. The massage machine stopped after about 15 minutes. I stood up slowly from the chair and felt this intense tightening of my entire body as if a cobra was squeezing the life out of me. I couldn't move. I became frightened and broke out in a cold sweat. Eventually, I was able to walk slowly outside and waited patiently for my wife. She soon arrived, carrying a few packages, then saw that I was having difficulty walking. Tears came to my eyes, but I tried to be upbeat, joking that my presumed temporary paralysis might be some muscle tightness from using the machine. Little did I know that this tension would remain with me for four months. What professionals did you see once you discovered you had chronic pain? How were they helpful or not helpful? What made you decide to accept some of their recommendations while rejecting others? Who was there to support you through your ordeal, and how were they supportive or not supportive? You'll be fine, my primary care physician said as I put my clothes back on after the exam. All you have to do is stretch, and I think yoga would be very helpful for you. Now, this was the guy who had recently won an award for being one of the best physicians on the North Shore of Massachusetts. Didn't he realize that I had spent days, even weeks, trying to walk at least 50 feet in the park? My worried wife saw what I was going through and became more concerned than ever about my health. She advocated as much as she could, but fell on deaf ears. She'd yell at me, why don't you change doctors? He's doing nothing for you. Well, she was right. But I've been with him for years, ever since our kids were young, and we belong to the same Chavara, which is a Jewish alternative religious group. 
My physician eventually sent me to see an in-network physiatrist who was a physician that specializes in musculoskeletal structure. But he was useless, since he recommended nothing other than walking and stretching, just like my primary care physician did. For a while longer, I tried to walk with my wife in the shopping mall or at a local park, but I preferred to sit or lie down after a few steps. The gripping pain radiated through my arms and chest, then down my legs. Taking showers was as difficult as getting dressed. Each night after seeing patients, I came home and immediately hopped into bed. I found that lying flat was the only way to gain some relief from the muscle tightness and excruciating chest and leg pain. In late October 2008, my wife became visibly upset and spoke to my primary care physician, telling him that I couldn't walk, even button a shirt, and I was getting really depressed. My primary care physician then ordered a brain MRI after my wife feared that I might have developed a brain tumor. Even my bank branch manager saw me walking in the bank once and asked me if I had MS, a condition her husband at the time had. I told her that I had no idea, but I hoped that the upcoming brain MRI showed something. Well, it didn't. The MRI was perfectly normal. My wife and I became more puzzled and afraid. In late November 2008, we had had enough. We decided to demand that my primary care physician refer me to see a neurologist at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. It was clear that yoga and stretching didn't change anything, and I was still lucky to even be walking 10 feet without experiencing any gripping pain that radiated through my chest and arms and down both legs. I had so much difficulty getting in and out of the shower, let alone dressing without assistance. Something had to change. When we arrived at the MGH Neurology Department early one December morning, the reception staff informed us that we had made an excellent choice by seeing a Dr. Gilmore O'Neill, a visiting neurologist and researcher from Ireland. Thank God something was going right, I thought. We didn't wait long until a handsome young man dressed in a warm blue suit appeared from behind the reception station and called out in a clear Irish brogue, Dr. Bailen. I got up and slowly walked to meet Dr. O'Neill, who watched me walk, then guided me into his office. Dr. O'Neill told me that he noticed how slowly and awkwardly I had walked and that I dragged my feet. I agreed, telling him it's been a very difficult few months and very trying on my wife, and she was as scared as I was. He then proceeded to ask me for a detailed history, writing intently as I talked about my initial experience with peripheral neuropathy, leading to what I considered a traumatic event at that Brookstone store in late August. Then he asked me to come into his examining room and change into a Johnny, then let him know when I was ready. This didn't take long, although I couldn't tie the string at the hospital ground behind my neck. Dr. O'Neill performed a standard neurological examination and inquired where I felt the most pain. I told him all over, but definitely more in my middle chest and stomach area. Dr. O'Neill said that he wanted me to have a full MRI of my cervical, thoracic, and lumbar spine as soon as possible, with contrast. When I asked what he thought was going on, Dr. O'Neill remained silent and softly stated that he still wasn't sure, but then his request for a full MRI was prudent. Dr. O'Neill had his secretary instruct the Mass General MRI Center in Charlestown, Mass., to arrange for a full MRI with contrast and secured an opening for the following week. I'll never forget that cold, raw Friday morning. 
It had been pouring all night long and continued after I got up at 4 a.m. to get dressed and headed to Charlestown for a 6 a.m. appointment. It took about 40 minutes to get there. The heavy rain intermixed with ice pounded on my car windshield as I crossed the Tobin Bridge and followed the looping directions past the USS Constitution to Charlestown to the MRI Center garage. The MRI scan took approximately 45 minutes. Then I was injected with a dye that would create contrasting images that would help the doctor detect any potential tumors. The technician rolled me back into the machine for an additional 15 minutes for the scan with contrast. The entire procedure went smoothly. I never had any anxieties about MRIs, even with their loud banging noise. I closed my eyes this time and imagined myself as a young boy holding my father's hand in Manhattan watching construction for the lower sections of a new skyscraper being built. I imagined a cluster of people looking through scattered wall openings, watching bulldozers and dump trucks move about like Tonka toys. Like many New Yorkers at the time, I found this repetitious clatter of heavy metal rather meditational. After I redressed, the medical assistant asked me if I wanted to meet the radiologist reviewing my MRI scan. Of course, I said. Why wait for a report when I could review the radiologist's opinion immediately? After all, I had some familiarity seeing MRIs of the spine. The medical assistant walked me into a dark room behind multiple machines showing multiple MRI scans. In front of them sat the radiologist, who told me he had already observed my scans but hadn't written the report yet. Would you like to see them, he asked. Absolutely, I said. He brought up a series of scans, with the first one showing my lumbar spine highlighted in the color orange. This is your L4, L5 area, and the color indicates that you have severe stenosis as at the L4, L5 level, with stenosis being a narrowing of the vertebrae against the spinal cord. Oh, so that's why I have had such pain, I said, almost relieved to have a physical cause be the answer. But the radiologist said, no, while this condition is giving you severe pain, there's another area that you should see. And my throat went dry as the radiologist brought up on the screen a scan of my cervical area. It was bright red. On the scan, at least two of my cervical vertebrae penetrated at least one-third of the way into my spinal cord. At that point, I felt faint. If you experience chronic pain, or you care for a loved one who suffers from chronic pain, you know how challenging and frustrating it can be to cope with on a daily basis. Well, you have plenty of company, as some 100 million people in the United States alone suffer from chronic pain, and that's just physical pain. In these podcasts, I will offer you some sound advice and a comprehensive strategy for handling the challenges of chronic pain and its many dimensions, physical, emotional, life stressors, cognitive, and fortitude. My pain management lifestyle model provides effective strategies for pain management, many of them drawn from my professional experiences as the chief psychologist of a pain management center, as someone who facilitated a free chronic pain support group for seven years, and as someone who experienced chronic pain from having six surgeries in seven years. My exercises will help you determine which of the strategies work best for you. And as you follow my pain management lifestyle model, you'll help to reduce your chronic pain 
by changing your perspective, learning to see your pain as an opportunity and as a challenge for improving your life overall. As my good colleague and best friend Stephen Neisenbaum, who is on the medical staff of the psychiatry department at Massachusetts General Hospital School of Medicine and is an assistant clinical professor in public health and community medicine at Tufts Medical School states, best wishes on your journey using Dr. Byland's model for a pain management lifestyle. You have suffered enough and no longer need to be saddled with the disabling and debilitating pain that has been torturing you. It is time to take control and seize the opportunity to live your life fully and unencumbered by misery.